I'm cricket, I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is October the 19th of 1969, and I'm extremely grateful for that. It's not hard for me to remember what I was like when I look around the room and I see police officers standing at the door. (laughs) That ought to give you a clue. I'm right where I need to be because I was where I used to be. Happy birthday, Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) Seventy years, untold miracles, uncountable healings of bodies, minds, and souls. Homes, careers, this is where it all began. And I personally have to say thank you to the founders of this magnificent fellowship. When the singers were singing Amazing Grace, if there's a person in this room who doesn't believe that once we were blind but now we see, you may need to read the book again. If you don't believe that we were lame but now we walk, you might ought to work a step or two. We have been given it all. In a general way, I will share with you what I used to be like. My mother's a full-blooded black Irish woman. My daddy's a full-blooded French man. My mother's very superstitious. One child is that in every family is born evil, they're born possessed. The least weighing at birth is that one, and I weighed two and a half pounds. (laughs) By the time I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was evil. I was possessed. My natural father sired 17 children, so I can tell you he was a very, very potent man. He believed in service work in the spirit of rotation. <laughs> he planted the seed and kept on a moving. None of us knew him. I will tell you, my mother was very, very fortunate, y'all. She married a gentleman back in the early 1940s. I am 62 years of age, I think. No! I'm going on 64, y'all. So when I say back in the early 40s, I'm talking back, back away. Back in the early 40s, she married this gentleman. He had a third grade education, and we made our living following crops across the United States of America. Now, let me tell you, before you feel sorry for me about that, That was an absolutely wonderful way of life. I loved picking crops. To this day, I have a relationship with fruit and vegetables that a lot of people never have. Not just eating it. You know, like this flower that somebody graciously pinned on me. If you look at the colors... And you can see and feel. See, it's not just a flower. It's a direct link from God to me. And let me tell you how it got here. As a child, I learned that there's one thing that society and people everywhere take for granted, and that's the soil of the earth. Good old-fashioned dirt. And I love that. 
And if it weren't for the soil of the earth, I wouldn't have been able to receive this tonight. If it weren't for the soil of Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't be here tonight. And that's a true story. The only thing I did not like about following crops is that every time the picking season changed, we had to move. And every time we moved, we had to start a new school. And every time we started a new school, I didn't fit in. I just didn't fit in. You were afraid to allow your children to play with us because we were different. You didn't understand the culture of the crop followers. You thought we were, I guess you thought we would steal your kids. And I did steal your money. And we stole anything you had, but never a child. <laughs> that was not something we were very interested in. And I felt like you didn't allow your children to play with me because of the way I looked. See, as crop followers, we didn't have indoor water. We didn't have electricity. And because of the things that are necessary for proper physical hygiene, I had horrible, horrible skin. I had long, black, nappy, curly hair and pretty rotten teeth. And I knew that if the outside of me looked different, then you would be okay with me. I remember as a child sitting and trying to cover me with my hands, because if you couldn't see me, I would be okay. I just knew that it all had to do with the outside of cricket. We wound up in Denver, Colorado, and I found a place in my home that probably saved my life as a child. I called it my safe place. I had to have a place in my home where I could go and I could hide away, where no one else could touch me or fit in. And it was behind the old wood stove. And behind the old wood stove, I could crawl back there and I could pretend. And I would pretend cricket away. My hair was a different color. My skin was a different color. My eyes were a different color. I was taller. If this was just different, I would be okay. We went to church as crop followers on a regular basis, like most alcoholics. We went twice a year, every year. <laughs> Let me tell you why we did that. At Thanksgiving and Christmas, ministers would stand behind pulpits, and they would tell the congregation that they should feed those less fortunate than themselves. They should be kind to those who didn't have what they had. And so twice a year, if we listen to a sermon all the way through, they'd give us a big wicker basket, and it would have that old Christmas ribbon candy in it, and it might have some fruit, it might have some meat, maybe a Crayolas and coloring books, but we had to listen to that sermon. Now, I'm going to tell you what the young girl heard. I heard a minister stand behind a pulpit and say to me, and I knew he was talking to me, he said, anything I prayed for in the name of Jesus, I'd receive. And you know what? I believed him. And I thought, anything I pray for in the name of Jesus, I will receive. And I went home from church, and when you follow crops, you're assigned places, and it's a kitchenette and a room and you share the outside facilities. And I remember going into our home and finding the mirror and looking in the mirror and looking at my face. And I found a place on my face that didn't have a zit. 
And I put my finger on that place, and I said, in the name of Jesus, when I wake up in the morning, make the rest of my face as clear as this spot is right here. And when I woke up in the morning, I was excited. Because you want to know what? I knew that my face was going to be okay. And if it was okay, you would like me. And I got up and I went to the mirror and there was a zit right where I prayed. You know, you know what that told me? Jesus didn't like me. Now, I'm not going to tell you that the minister lied. I'm not even going to tell you that he was wrong. I'm going to tell you I do not believe he knew what I heard. I also am very, very careful what I promise people in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. If I can't guarantee it, I'm not going to promise it. And I can make you one guarantee. If you don't take a drink of anything containing alcohol, you will never get drunk again in your life. (laughs) That's our first gift. From that gift, we have to work for the rest of it. After that prayer, I crawled back behind that wood stove, and I said a prayer to God. And my prayer to God at that time in my life, I was 12 years of age, was, Dear God, sir, I don't believe in you. I don't believe in family. I don't believe in cleanliness. And I don't believe in goodness. But just in case you are, sir, this is my very last prayer to you. Help me to never feel again. And big boy, I don't want any special favors from you. I don't even want to feel good. Two of my older brothers at this time were career men. They were professionals. They were armed robbers. Uh, and they became, they came behind my wood stove, y'all, and they had made a hole in the wall to hide their guns. And they came back there shortly after that prayer, and they brought me a present. Now, bear in mind, my family's not a present-giving family. And they handed me this little brown sack, and it had a pint of whiskey in it, and I didn't know what it was at that time. And they said, if you don't tell on us, you can have this. For the very first time in my life that I know of, I took a drink of alcohol. And let me tell you how I did it. I took it out of the sack, I opened the bottle, and I drank it off. You know? (coughs) It burned all the way down. It burned all the way back up again. It burned all the way back down again. And I drank it until it was empty. I left home at that age, started living on the streets of Denver, Colorado, doing whatever I had to do to get that next drink of alcohol. The state of Colorado interfered. They sent me to the reform school in Morrison, Colorado, because they said I was incorrigible. Punishment is wonderful sometimes. There was three meals a day. There was two sheets on every bed, one person to a bed. Indoor toilet. I loved being punished. <clears throat> I guess I became corrigible because they let me go home. At the age of 16, I, was, I went home, went right back to the streets of Denver. At the age of 16, the state of Colorado interfered one more time. They took me from the streets of Denver. They did not recognize teenage alcoholism back in the 1950s. They said I could not live the lifestyle I was living. So they took me from the streets of Denver, and they took me to the Colorado State Insane Asylum in Pueblo, Colorado. 
They diagnosed me as schizophrenic with paranoid reactions, psychotic tendencies. I thought, woo, I'm only 16. <laughs> they took me to this hospital, and to make me not be those things, they gave me 10 milligrams of Valium, 25 milligrams of Librium, and 50 milligrams of Thorazine four times a day. <laughs> the compulsion to drink was removed. I stayed in the Colorado State, State Insane Asylum from the age of 16 to a week prior to my 18th birthday. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, they laid me to a gurney every week, took me into a room called the Electric Shock Treatment Room. Three times a week for 18 months, they administered electric shock treatments. I have brain damage, and I love it. You know, I have an excuse for being a lunatic. You know, I can't vote, I can't serve on a jury, and for many, many years before sponsorship, I call it, I could act real inappropriately. <laughs> you can't do that after sponsorship. Maybe that's what the Nuthouse needed for sponsors. Had I not left a week prior to my 18th birthday, the state of Colorado was going to sterilize me so that I could never produce a child. They didn't want another cricket, and I understand that today. But at the age of 37, with several years of sobriety in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, let me tell you what God allowed to happen. I got to give a baby birth. I got to house the baby inside of me. I got to let that baby grow. I got to take that baby home from the hospital. I got to rear that child. She's never been in jail. She's 27. She's never been arrested. She's got a high school diploma, a little bit of college, a divorced mother of a most beautiful six-year-old son, a hard-working woman, and she's never done the things I've done. Why? Because of you. But had they sterilized me, I would have never known that. That child never laid in the floor and saw a foot coming upside of her head. That child was never called out of her name by me. That child never worked the streets of any city anywhere. When I left that state in San Asylum, I weighed 300 pounds. I could not get out into the sunshine because of the Thorazine. I had lost the ability to speak. My chin laid over on my shoulder as if I had a stroke. And I did that thing that people make fun of. They call it the Thorazine Shuffle. You know, I didn't do that for your benefit. It was the only way I could get from point A to point E. If I could have walked right, I would have walked right. If I could have been the way it took to get you to accept me, I would have done that all of my life. But I just could not be those things. As soon as I could hold my head up and talk again and walk more normal, I'm right back in the beer joint. You know, I, I'm like the wonderful, I love Francine. I'm like Francine, only probably I was a little lower class. And that's okay. You know, I, I was a street vendor. <laughs> and it was, it was wonderful. I had a select group, group of customers. Their names were John. Every one of them. What a coincidence. I loved men then, and I love men then now, 
and I didn't give freebies then, and I don't give freebies now. Sixty-four years old, and I've got a marketable commodity. <laughs> that was, that's one way of helping Social Security. <coughs> I stayed on the streets, traveling, going from city to city. I won't give you a criminal history, because I really do still have a little uh, uncomfortable feeling with people with certain kinds of uniforms on. Suffice it to say, in some jails, in some cities, they just said, go to your cell and shut the door. But I violated every commandment. When I was in that ward for the criminally insane, I had died. And when I left that hospital for the next ten years of my life, nothing mattered. I wound up back in Denver, Colorado in the early part of 1969. And you know, I knew what was going to happen. I was going to die exactly what I was. A drunken slut on some street of some city somewhere. And it just didn't matter. It just didn't matter. I wound up back in Denver and of course I found my place. I don't know. You know, they, they, they talk about the different types of alcoholics. I know one type of alcoholic. This is the type of alcoholic I was. This is the type of alcoholic that I know. A person who drinks when they don't want to, who does things they don't remember doing, who can't stop when they get started, who has moments of true regret, it just, it's a disease. Alcoholism is a disease. <coughs> and I don't think it matters where we contact it. I really don't. I don't think it matters where we get our liquor. I know there are housewife drunks, and that had to be pretty boring on occasion. <laughs> just a different type. They're protected. That had to be frightening to have people say, you can't have a problem. See, women like me, everybody looks at it and says, you got a problem. But you get a professional career woman or man with alcoholism, and people don't understand it. You take a street person, and people say, oh, there before the grace of God go I. Excuse me? God doesn't love you any better than he does that drunk on the street. No way. There before the grace of God go red. I go into this beer joint. My beer joints are dark. I like dark. My beer joints are loud. Not because I like music, because I don't like you. My beer joints have the bar stools that the stuffing comes up through the red plastic stuff. And they've got that gray tape holding the stuffing in. They've got them eggs soaking in that purple stuff. You know, salt, salty popcorn, cigarette burns. That's my beer joint. I'm at home there. I like that. I practice my crafts in many a beer joint across the United States of America. I met a lot of people 
in beer joints. Some really good people. I met a man one night and his wife, and he approached me and he said, Cricket, my wife and I have watched you for several months and we think you have a problem drinking. I said, excuse me, I don't have a problem drinking. He says, Cricket, you go places you don't remember going. And I said, so what? He said, you do things you don't remember doing. And I said, so what? He said, you fight over stupid things. I said, nope. <coughs> the things I fight over are not stupid. And then he said, I'll make a deal with you. If you go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with us tomorrow night, I'll leave you alone if we find out you don't have a problem. I said, okay, big boy. And he said, now when you wake up in the morning, don't take a drink of anything containing alcohol. And I said, okay, big boy. I felt like I was being dared, and I'm one of those people who always took the dare. My sister was with me. I weighed 78 pounds. <laughs> and I looked at my sister, and she gave him our, her phone number. And he said, at the meeting's at 1311 York Street. Don't take a drink. I said, no problem, big boy. I went to my sister's house. <coughs> the next morning I woke and did what I did every morning. Reached for my bottle of whiskey, set up in the bed. That morning I could not take that first drink. Now let me tell you all, that was one of the very first miracles of this fellowship. I could not. I got so sick not drinking, it was unbelievable. I got those dry heaves. Oh, it was a nightmare. But see, I had already determined that I would come to Alcoholics Anonymous and get you to kick me out. That way I don't look weak to Harry. And that idiot called my sister's house at noon. She put me on the phone. He said, this is Harry. Have you had anything to drink? And I said, no. Do you need a ride? I said, let me tell you something, fool. I don't need anything from you. I told you I'd be at your meeting and I will be there. But I don't need anything from you. So I took a yellow cab to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I didn't need anybody or anything. And I didn't like the word anonymous. I didn't understand what it meant. So I had the yellow cab drop me off a half a block away from the group. Because I was embarrassed. The week before, I went to the Denver County Jail in the back of a paddy wagon, waving at people out the window. <laughs> that wasn't embarrassing, but to go into an anonymous organization? Excuse me. I walked into my first AA meeting, and I have to tell you, I came into AA with two prejudices. I did not like red-haired women. I sponsor them now. That's God doing for me what I could not do for myself. But back in 1969, I'd hit them. You know, if they walked up to me, if they got within striking distance, I struck. And I didn't like lesbians. I sponsor them now. God doing for me what I could not do for myself. At my very first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, a red-headed lady came walking up to me, and she said, Hi, my name's Sharon. Are you an Alfie? And so I knocked her on her rear end. <laughs> I sat on the very back row. When I was a newcomer, they passed the baskets, and they said, If you've got it, put it in. If you need it, take it out. 
I took all their money. They said, take what you need now, what you don't need now, come back and get later. So I broke into the office, took their adding machine, the office equipment, took it to the pawn shop and hawked it. Came back to break into the Coke box to get some money and a soft drink. I love Coca-Cola. So I'm going to get some money and a Coke. And I get approached by a group of people. And I've been staying sober. I've got three weeks. You've got to kick me out. I want to go back to my beer joint. I want to get on to the business of drinking and dying, and I'll leave you alone. This group of men approached me at the Coke machine, and they said, Cricket, we're not going to tolerate your behavior anymore. And I said, okay. I felt happy. I felt really happy they were going to kick me out. And they said, we want to kick you out really bad, but our traditions won't allow us. And I thought, oh, my God, what's a tradition? Why would you have something that won't allow you to have people in your home you don't want in your home? I Get rid of them. They told me I had to take back the, my price list that my sister had passed out. I could no longer turn over tables in discussion meetings if I didn't like the discussion. I could no longer wait till an Al-Anon walked in the room and sat down on her husband's lap. I had to bring back the money I panhandled, and I said, okay, big boy, how are we going to do this? Every night at 8 o'clock at 1311 York Street in Denver, Colorado, for my first six months of sobriety, from three weeks to six months, I was escorted in and out of AA meetings by two men. They met me at the door, they sat beside me, they walked me out. Go figure. And you say there's no must? I stayed sober at that group. I was approached by the narcotics division of the Denver Police Force and told I had to leave Denver. And I thought, my goodness, I've done, thank you, nothing for six months. And you're telling me I have to leave Denver? Okay, big boys, where am I going to go? They said, Cricket, you're moving to Fort Worth, Texas. And I said, oh, drunk I didn't go to Texas. And they said, that's why. The little girl that believed the preacher believed what I'd heard about Texas. I'd heard that the men in Texas were goat ropers. I heard that the weeds in Texas tumbled. And I heard that instead of toilet paper, they used corn cobs. Now, back then, I believed that in the early part of 1970. And I said, okay, big boys, I'll go on three conditions. I want a case of the softest toilet paper made by mankind. And I have a fourth grade education, so I, want, I wanted a high school diploma. And I wanted a car with a driver's license. I never had a DWI because I'd never driven. I did get in trouble in St. Joe, Missouri. I got on a hill drunk in a shopping cart. <laughs> it builds up momentum. You can't steer a shopping cart. You can't break a shopping cart, but you can wreak havoc and destruction with traffic in a runaway shopping cart. By the time the police officers got me stopped, they gave me a ticket for driving a non-motorized vehicle under the influence of alcohol. And I went back to jail again. 
They said that they would do all those things. They took me to this house, this building, and this lady read me questions for about 30 minutes. And she said, congratulations, you passed your GED. And I've gone back and taken one. I passed my GED, y'all. They gave me a case of Charmant toilet paper. They bought me a 58 Rambler station wagon, and they told me as soon as I could get a driver's license, I was leaving Denver. Now, we had a problem. That station wagon has three pedals, and I've got two legs. I never could figure out what they were wanting me to do up here and down there at the same time. And I went in day after day after day to take a driving test. Probably into the second week, I went in and they all looked at one another and said, I'm not getting in the car with her again. But this one old bleeding deacon, he said, I will. And he went out, y'all, and got in the car with me and he said, cricket, crank it up. And so I turned the ignition key and it started and he said, congratulations, you passed your driving test. My sister, my high school diploma, my toilet paper, and that 58 Rambler station wagon left Denver, Colorado. I could use the very first gear, skippy gear, and use third gear. And that's how we got from Denver to Fort Worth. And I don't know if you all have ever made that drive, but Texas is a long, flat drive. And we're just driving forever. And we're in Fort Worth, and I looked at my sister Sally, and she looked at me, and we just keep going. And she says, look, sis, there's a little beer joint called the Lucky Lady. I said, we need to find a place to live near here because Texans are backwards. I won't have any problem getting kicked out of AA. I haven't taken a drink since I came in, y'all. And at that time, I had six months sobriety. She said, okay, we found a little place near the Lucky Lady. I did the next thing I was supposed to do. I had done something to that car. It never went anywhere again, but I called Southwest Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, we got this place on the far east side of Fort Worth, and some man answered the phone, and he said, Southwest Group, may I help you? And I said, yes, I need directions to your group. He said, do you need a ride? I said, is that what I asked you for, big boy? Can you handle giving me directions to your group? And he did. And I hitchhiked from my far, from the far east side to the far southwest to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Fort Worth. Walked in and a red-headed lady could walk up to me. If you all have never heard a Texan woman say, darling, I mean, she came walking up and she said, hello. Darling, I got them creepy crawlies all over me, and I knocked her on her rear end. It was awful, and that was her fault, y'all, not mine. She was nasty. It's at this group that I learned about Al-Anons, and I got into service work, my first act of service work. I sat in the meetings, and before and after meetings, I would hear the men tell me how sick their Al-Anons were. <laughs> They're sicker than we are. They don't want us drunk. They don't want us sober. They don't want us with them beer joint women. And they don't want us with you women. And I thought, you poor man, let me be of service. 
so I went to the county hospital, and I had a gentleman show me where the intensive care unit was, and I stole the sign. And I took it back and nailed it to the Al-Anon room door, so they would know how sick they were. I will tell you that I sponsor an Al-Anon woman. I've worked her through the Al-Anon steps. There's not an organization I have more respect for than the Al-Anon and Alateen family groups. And you men should be real grateful you were married to one of them instead of one of me. Because if you'd ever came home and told me you didn't remember where you were and you lied and cheated and did some of the things you do to your wife, I'd have took a ball bat to you. And I'd have told you, I don't know, you came home looking that way. You don't remember. The men don't like me to sponsor their wives. <laughs> I stayed sober at that group, y'all, for about eight years. Somebody coughed a resentment. They went in and they torched it. Everybody thought it was me. I've never set an AA group on fire yet. Never. I just haven't done it. I had some novel experiences at that group. I'd never been married before before I got sober. And at that group, I had my first marriage. I've had 12 husbands since then. Two of them were my own. And I'm so glad you all got the husbands you got. They were never that good. That's, let me tell you the truth. I say that because I envy men and women that can keep a spiritual commitment to one another and have a friendship and a safe person to go home to. So don't take my levity as any kind of condemnation. It's not. I admire it in you. When that group burned, I had to go to another group, and they told me I I should go down to the Harbor Club. And I said, okay, but see, I know I shouldn't go there, because the women at Harbor were ladies. The women at Southwest wouldn't sponsor me. They were afraid of me. The women at Harbor were professional people. They wouldn't work with a woman like me, and the men would never accept a woman like me. But I didn't have a choice. With many years of continuous sobriety, I went down to Harbor Club of Alcoholics Anonymous and walked into my first meeting, and I was approached by a red-headed lady. I didn't want to get her. I would have, but want to wasn't there because she was older. And she came up to me and she said, Cricket, my name's Betty G, and I'm real scared of you, but I'm going to be your sponsor. I said, excuse me. Lady, I don't need a sponsor. I've been sober several years. She said, I'm not taken away from that. Let's go in the office here at Harbor Club. And if I find out you don't have a pro, that you understand the big book, the program of recovery as outlined in the big book, in the first 164 pages, I'll leave you alone. And I said, okay, woman. We went into the office of the club, and I sat down across the desk from Betty G, and she opened up the big book of AA. And she held it across the desk to me, opened up, and she said, please read me the first portion of chapter 5. And I started reading. And I read, rarely have we seen a person fail. And I read all the way through the ABCs. And Betty G. took the big book of AA out of my hand. And she said, Cricket, darling, 
you can't read. And it was like I'd been gut kicked, and I said, excuse me a moment, I just read you the first portion of chapter 5. And she said, no, I had it open on chapter 3. And I said, what are you going to do with that information, lady? Let me tell you what she did with that. She took me to a thing called remedial reading. Every day, Monday through Friday, week after week after week, I went and sat with nine and ten-year-old children. And I learned 26 things. Those 26 things each had one name, and they just made a couple sounds. After several weeks of this, I will look, remember looking up at flashcards. Three letters flashed up. B-A-T. Can you understand how miraculous it is that those three things came together and they made a word, not just on paper. They made a word in my eyes, behind my eyes, and all the way down. And I knew what it meant. I knew that word said bat. It was picture perfect. It does exactly what we're supposed to do. Our steps, our traditions, and the concepts of service are supposed to come together and make a whole. The traditions are not, should not be used as weapons to get your own way. They shouldn't be used as weapons to hurt other people. They should be used as tools. That's my personal opinion, and I believe it, and I don't care if you do or not. See, your opinion doesn't matter to me. I'm not one of those people that love everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've met some real jerks in this fellowship, men and women. But you know what? I care enough about everybody, in AA or out of AA, I'll feed you if you're sober, if you're hungry. I'll clothe you if you're naked. And I'll do anything in my power to help you not take that next drink of alcohol. This woman set me at a table down at this club and taught me how to use more than just a spoon to eat with. She made me totally change the way I dress. She made me quit using the bad language. She just started me on a journey, y'all. Oh, gosh. I hope you all get to take the cruise with me. You know, I got to go to a place called Powerless. I got to understand that that's not humiliating. That's not weak. I'm cricket. I'm powerless over alcohol. That's not a big deal. My life's unmanageable. And how exciting to come to believe that a power greater than me, a power greater than me could restore me to sanity. Do you know how bad I wanted to be saved? I wanted to be like the rest of you. I wanted the storms inside to quit. I didn't want to behave the way I was behaving. I didn't want to hurt people and I couldn't stop me. She made me quit stealing. Miracle. Several years of continuous sobriety. And I got to make a decision. The same person that can't vote or serve on a jury. I was allowed to make a decision. My decision was to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand Him. See? And you know what? God's never forced himself on me. He's a gentleman. Do you know how wonderful it feels to a woman like me to go someplace and not have men disrespect me, open doors for me, call me man? You know, what kind of a miracle is that? 
Do you know how clean I feel when the men in this fellowship wrap their arms around me and hug me? And you know what they want to touch on me? My heart. That's all they're interested in. Can I add anything to your life today? I steady did what my sponsor told me to do until the day that she died. And that was such a heartbreaking thing for me and for a lot of other people. I will tell you that she laid at my feet the spiritual tools that I need to walk the rest of my journey in life. A few years ago, I was diagnosed. I have terminal cancer. It's in the abdomen. And I know that I'm getting ready. You know, I'm on the, I'm on that, that part of the journey that you have to do kind of alone, but not alone. And that's okay. I'm very careful with the medications they give me for pain because I want to go out knowing I'm going out. You know, I, I want to, I want to go knowing who I am because I like who I am today. I, um, had to make a decision two years ago. And that decision was to leave Fort Worth, Texas, because I had to go on early Social Security. And I couldn't get the medication that I needed in Fort Worth to just live. And I'm very, very blessed, because there's some people in Illinois. I have a room for hospice in a friend's home. I have a doctor in Illinois that cares very, very much. I don't have to buy much of my medication. But let me tell you what I had to leave in Fort Worth, Texas, the place I didn't want to go. My daughter. My grandson. My AA groups. My sponsorees. And when I drove away from there, see, I had lived in a little yellow house, bright yellow house. No two rooms in that house were the same color. It was a rainbow of love. Little Mexican girls learned how to roller skate on my hardwood floors. Right before I left Fort Worth, Texas to move, one of the little Mexican children in the third grade came running across the street, Miss Cricket, Miss Cricket. And I said, Marty, so? And she said, look, we got an A on our report card. Because, see, I knew those 26 things that I could teach that little girl. And she was right. We got an A on her report card. What a magnificent feeling. I left Fort Worth, Texas in my little 1988 Mustang, and everything I owned was in that Mustang at this time. And I'm getting partway to Illinois, and I'm thinking, God, I can't do this. You know, will I ever get to touch the cheeks of my sponsoree again. Will I ever get to look in my daughter's eyes? Will I ever get to kneel down and behold the beauty of the love of not just my grandson, whom I adore more than anything, but the little Mexican baby? And I went to Illinois, and it's hard to be the new kid on the block with several years of sobriety. It's hard. And I don't care what anyone says, it's always different when you go somewhere else to live. The adjustment is different. But y'all need to know, the very last person I'm going to sponsor 
is a little Polish lady named Liz and my dear friend Claire, and they got in their car yesterday morning and drove me to you. They brought me. The lady who just wrote my life story is also the one who's providing my hospice room. Next Thursday, my first real, my, my first real one that belonged to me, my first ex-husband, and his wife are flying me to Fort Worth, Texas, y'all. I'm going to stay at a motel. And for four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Sunday morning, I get to stand up in front of those people who love me enough that at one point they all got together and raised enough money for me to have a year's medicine, which gave another year of life. You know, that same group of men and women who would never accept a woman like me. Way back yonder in Alcoholics Anonymous, they used to say, you can't teach what you don't know. You can't lead where you don't go. You can't be what you are not, and you can't give what you ain't got. You know? Now let me tell you what I've got today. A wonderful AA group, a wonderful place to live, wonderful friends to travel with. And I'm going to wipe this, wind this all up by saying to you, there's a lady that I think she must live in California or someplace where famous people kind of live. Her name is Celine Dion. And she sings songs. And she sings really good songs. And I had to, because of my illness, I had to plan my going out, you know, how I want it to be. And so I said that for Jesus, I want them to sing just a closer walk with me. And that's to be dedicated to him. And for just everybody, I want them to sing Amazing Grace. For Alcoholics Anonymous, I want them to sing the Celine Dion song so that you all will know what you gave to me. And I'll quote just a few of the lines from it. You were my voice when I could not speak. You were my strength when I was weak. I lost my voice. You gave it back to me. I lost my faith, and you gave it to me. See, you were the thing. You were what I needed. You came around me, under me, snuck up behind me, and gave me a sponsor. And because of that, my sponsor gave me life. And each day I ask God, let me be of maximum service. Maximum service. Last week I sat in Seattle, Washington, and I spoke at the Sunday morning meeting. And before I spoke, I'm sitting out in the hallway smoking a cigarette because I like to smoke, just like I like men. I'm sitting in that hallway, and this young 17-year-old girl comes and sits down beside me, and she's you could tell she's not okay, and I said, are you all right? She said, no, I'm not. I said, what's the matter? She said, well, I haven't slept all night, and I'm hungry, 
and I have to sit here and listen to this next damn speaker. <laughs> and I said, you do? And she said, yeah. And I said, how come? She said, well, because I'm staying at the Sally Salvation Army. And in order to be able to stay there, I have to listen to these speakers. And I, I said, okay. And I said, well, I can't make you not tired. And I can't make you get out of hearing that next damn speaker that you're going to have to hear. Would you allow me to treat you to breakfast? And she said, oh, lady, you don't have to do that. And see, I live on a very limited income, but they give the speakers their meals. So I took my meal ticket they'd given me for breakfast, and I went in and asked the man, would you please let her eat on my ticket? Because I'm not hungry. And he said, certainly. So she got to go in and get a belly full, you know. See, God honored my prayer. Do you know how good it made me feel? I got to do something for somebody last week. I got to touch somebody. And that was a miraculous feeling, y'all. She had about three weeks of sobriety. Now, this was held in a big old bingo hall, and the speaker sat out there until time to get to the podium. I wish you could have seen her face when they were walking me up. <laughs> she did that new, typical newcomer, oh. And I just, I just bubbled inside. You know, to God be the glory. And if you don't see the glory today, and look around you, and let me tell you the person you need to touch tonight, the one you don't want to. The one that may not look as good as you think, a sober member ought to look. Maybe the one that drools a little. The best teacher I had at giving was a gentleman in Fort Worth that came in off the street, had a little brown bag of donuts that he'd been gnawing on, had no teeth, and he walked up to the table and he said, Lady, would you like a donut? Several people had told him no. And I looked that man in the eye and I said, Yes, sir, I would love one. You know why? He was given his all. He was given everything he had to give. And I said, would it bother you if I took it to school and shared it with my daughter? I have to go pick her up. He said, no, lady, you can have the whole bag. So me, I took the donuts. We went, and we, I picked up my daughter. She and I stopped at the duck pond and fed the duck, that man's donuts. And I walked back to the group, and they said, did you eat them donuts? <laughs> Let me tell you what. I would have, but I want to give like that gentleman. I want to learn how someday to give you all I have and to give it freely and tell you you can have the whole bag. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my sobriety. Thank you for my sanity. Thank you for caring enough about me to want me to be a part of you. And Bob C., You've been absolutely wonderful, and I'm sorry I can't meet you in the room. My sponsor won't allow me to do that anymore. Thank you.